You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 465 of this podcast. Today is Thursday, September 8th, 2022. And today we're going to talk about a couple of different things, one of them being credentialism, another one being some stickers that I just ordered. Uh, Also, I've got uh, some exciting updates that are exciting to me anyways, uh, concerning my computer setup, which (laughs) maybe will just bore the tar out of you, but uh, I should hope not. And uh, also we're going to talk about Plutarch's Life of Camillus, which I recently read and very much enjoyed. And I want to share with you just a little snippet from Life of Camillus. But first off, vocabulary. Word of the day from Merriam-Webster, credentialism. I had to look this one up. I had never heard the term before, but I was recently listening to some commentators over at the Daily Wire this past week. I was listening to uh, Andrew Clavin and Michael Knowles and Ben Shapiro, and I believe it was Andrew Clavin who was talking about credentialism, and he mentioned it in passing, and I had never heard that term, but in context, I understood what he meant by it, and I thought, boy, that's an interesting term. I think that's a useful term that we should become acquainted with. So what is credentialism, you might be wondering? It is, according to Merriam-Webster, undue emphasis on credentials, such as college degrees, as prerequisites to employment. Now, why does it matter? Well, for one, I think it matters that there's an ignorance and folly and hubris in our day, assuming that everyone needs to go to college in order to do well professionally, in order to be successful professionally. I do do not think that that follows. I get asked when recruiters reach out to me or when people are curious about what I do right now, or if I'm talking about being a systems integrator and passing and They want to know how I got to become a systems integrator. Uh, I'll very often say what it is. I, yes, went to college for a little bit. I got my associate's degree at uh, Kaplan University or from Kaplan University going online after having attended Cedarville University for a year, after having attended Southern State Community College for a year. I also attended Kaplan University for a year and got my associate's degree And of course, when you switch around college to college, not always do the credits transfer. And so that was an issue with Kaplan. And plus, they also wanted me to take a certain number of credits with them before I was going to be able to get my business degree. So I have an Associates of Applied Science in Business Administration. It's something, right? It's something. Plus, I was going to uh, work in Cincinnati at the time that I finished that up, working 12-hour shifts, night shifts in a factory with 
uh, some people who had, they, they needed to again, maybe, but they had been through anger management three times at the company's requirement. That did not go so well. Uh, <laughs> it did not go so well, but I did get my degree and I got my associate's degree, uh, more to the point. And then later on, actually in 2016, when I left ConocoPhillips, they were moving offices to Watford City from Sydney, Montana. I had bought a house in Sydney, Montana. I didn't feel like commuting for free, and I didn't feel like moving my family to Watford City and uprooting us from our church and starting over in a you know not favorable housing market, housing conditions. Uh, we're still pretty inflated in Watford City. Plus, we had bought our house in Sydney for something that we weren't going to get back. We weren't going to be able to sell that house and get the money out of it that we had paid for it. Uh, I said, no, thank you, took a severance package and reinvented myself after a fashion by God's grace as an automation technician and then an instrumentation technician and then a INE technician and now a systems integrator. But I, before getting the job in technician work, automation, uh, I actually went back to school for a while in pursuit of my bachelor's degree because I thought, well, okay, if I've got my associate's degree, but I've also got this extra year's worth of credits, I should probably go finish up my bachelor's degree. And plus, I don't know how long before I find another job. And while I'm looking for work, I could be pursuing a degree online. And plus, I've got the severance package. And so that can bankroll some of this. Uh, I didn't finish up my bachelor's degree because my wife ended up having major knee surgery and it was just too much. It was too much to go to school full-time online, plus help her recover, plus take care of kids, plus work, plus be involved with church. I was a deacon at the time, and uh, something had to give, so I ended up uh, throwing in the towel for the time being, or at least putting the towel on the shelf for the time being with regards to my bachelor's degree. But I think in some people's mind, they scratch their head about, for one, why would you go back to school? Why, why would you go and try and get your bachelor's degree? You're already making a great deal more money than most people with bachelor's degrees. And what is it going to benefit you to say you've got this four-year degree? Uh, there's other people who, from the opposite angle, look down on me because I have not finished my bachelor's degree. They, I, they think, well, you, know, you went to college, but you dropped out, and so that's a sign that you're not a finisher. You didn't complete that thing. And I think that the folks in the former category maybe don't quite appreciate how the people in the latter category tend to be very closed off to someone who doesn't have their degree finished. And it's unfortunate. It, it really is. I think it's folly and it's ignorance and it's hubris for those who do hold degrees to look down on those who do not hold degrees. There's nothing in a degree that says you will be successful if you have this degree. There's lots of people who don't amount to anything, but they have degrees. And there's plenty of people who change the world without having a college degree. All a college degree is a little piece of paper that you will probably spend a great deal of money for, spend a lot of time getting, which says you jumped through the hoops. You checked the boxes you were told to check. You gave the answers you were told to give, but what if you're being told to give the wrong answers? That's an important question. Also, what if you just flat don't have time for it because you're busy actually doing useful things 
And well, you know, where where is the capture for that? Where's the piece of paper that says I don't have time to go back to school because I'm busy raising a family. I'm busy working. I'm busy podcasting. Uh, to go back to school now would mean me giving up on podcasting. and It would mean giving up on writing. And I just don't think that's worth it. I don't think that's worth it. Uh, I also think that in our day, there are far too many credentials that are handed out for money and not as much for merit. And I know this from experience going to college, seeing a lot of people just going through the motions and not curious at all, at all about what it is that they're learning, what the implications are. They're just going through the motions. They're just checking the boxes. They're just jumping through the hoops. And let me tell you, I think a far better, more efficient way, more cost-effective way to get the skills that you need, to get the knowledge and the learning that you need to be successful in your working life, in regular life, can be had outside of colleges and outside of universities. I think there's a minority of cases where the university might be the best place for you to go to get your education. But in the majority of cases, I think we should be listening to audiobooks and reading good books, and we should be writing. You study and write independently, and you will get a phenomenal education, and you won't have to pay nearly so much for it. But in other news, some stickers just arrived this week with my podcast logo on them, speaking of the podcast, which you are listening right now, uh, two, <laughs> they are one inch by one inch stickers. They're not very big. I paid about a dollar each for them, but I've already put some on my microphone, my water bottle, my computer tower. I've given several away already, and I'm going to be mailing out a batch to listeners who request stickers in the next week. So if you would like to receive one, do let me know. I'll be happy to send one to you. Uh, no charge. I'll just need your address. No, you do not need to give me your social security number or your bank account uh, credentials, login information. Just give me your address and I will mail the stickers to you. But the idea, if you're curious, why? what gave you the idea to get these stickers? Uh, the idea first occurred to me while I was setting up my Patreon account last week. And you can find a link to that Patreon account at thegeardashleymulletshow.com, by the way. But initially, I was planning to make getting a sticker conditional on signing up to be a patron on Patreon. Uh, at least that's where the suggestion came from. It came from Patreon. That's where the idea came from. They said, oh, you could do a promotional thing where... You know, you'll give away free stickers to anybody who signs up to be a patron. And I thought, oh, okay, that's cool. That's a cool idea to give stickers away for free, <laughs> regardless of whether people are patronizing me in the, the best sense. But when the stickers arrived, if I was kind of on the fence about it before, I just, I couldn't quite bring myself to sell them. They only cost me a dollar each. And I haven't sold my podcast episodes to this point nor do I intend to start now. This is a labor of love for me. This podcast is. Uh, that doesn't mean money is the opposite of love, but it's important to me that no one think I'm doing what I'm doing here to try to get rich and famous. That is not the big idea. That is not my motivation, nor do I want to give 
the wrong impression to the contrary. So if you want a sticker, I will give you one until they run out. And if more people besides that want them, I'll probably just order more. So do let me know. If you want to sponsor this podcast, you are certainly welcome to go over to Patreon and do that, but you don't have to. Listening and engaging with what I'm saying, encouraging people you know who would also enjoy and benefit from doing that too, that's enough for me. That really is, I derive a great deal more value from hearing what people think of the podcast and if they learned something or if it taught them something or if it challenged them in something, that is what I'm doing it for. That's enough for me. In other news, this is my first of five days off this hitch, and I'm very excited about a couple more things I recently ordered besides stickers, which should all be here in the next day or two. First, a mount for my personal computer tower, my PC tower, as some call it, uh, to attach (laughs) my computer tower to the bottom of the standing desk I bought here just a few months ago. That is very exciting to me. I've never done that before, but that'll allow my tower to go up and down with the desk when I, or our four-year-old son, John, as the case may be, raise or lower this desk. Now, the desk actually goes up pretty high, as John likes to demonstrate from time to time when I'm not in the room. When I step away, I'll come back and I'll find it at its maximum height, or at least as high up as he can make it go uh, without his short little legs preventing him from continuing to push the button and hold it down. But that gets to be a problem. You know, if he raises it all the way up and the tower with all the cables attached to it is still down there on the floor. Uh, It worries me that something's going to break off or get unplugged or it's going to just cause a bit of a problem there. It also concerns me that the cables are hanging down and it's a mess. So I ordered this mount that'll screw into the bottom of the desk and that'll solve that problem because the tower will go up and down with the desk. Second, similarly... I ordered a very highly manipulatable keyboard and mouse tray uh, drawer type deal to install on the underside of my desk. And it's actually the exact same one I had when I was at Sterling Energy, my previous uh, place of employment, which I left to come here. Uh, I ordered that one with the company credit card. And this one is for my own personal use. I'll be using it for work too, but it's for my own personal use as much or more. And I don't have a company credit card anymore. So uh, I ordered it with my own monies. But at least I know what I think of the thing. I've used it before. I found it very useful. And that'll clear off some of the real estate on top of the desk, which is good for being able to put other things like you know, food or drink or books or what have you uh, that I'm working from. Uh, third, this one's probably the least you know, complicated or technical, I ordered a couple of wireframe trays to install under my desk for cable management. And it may not sound like much, but it really does help to not have cables hanging loose and ugly. Plus also this desk is on rollers. And so once I've got the tower mounted up underneath and the mouse and keyboard mounted up underneath and the cables are tucked in better and not just hanging down loose and ugly. It really will make it a lot cleaner for me to 
roll the desk around in my office and put it where I want it to be without it being an eyesore. And for me, that is worth a lot. That gives me a sense of well-being, helps me to concentrate. I think it helps the morale of my family for it to not look like a mess. And so there you go. Very excited about that. Should have everything installed in the next couple of days when the rest of the parts come in. But as for the meat and potatoes of this episode, Plutarch, in the parallel lives of the noble Greeks and Romans, which I am making my way through right now, it is the, I believe, single longest book I have ever read or listened to, if you will, at 83 hours on one-time speed. It is a long, long book, but it's not feeling long. I am 10 hours in. I listen on double speed. That's how I roll. And uh, it's not feeling very long. And I think a large part of that is because it's broken up into bios of individual noble Greeks and Romans, as the title suggests. Plutarch, for his part, lived from 46 AD to 120 AD, 120 AD. And he tells some very, very interesting stories of notable Greeks and Romans from the history of the Greeks and the Romans. And it's not just that, right? You could do that in a lot of ways and it could be very, very dry, but his being far more contemporary, he's got a lot better access to original source material that he's able to use in putting together these lives. Also too, he is a Greek. He is living at a time where Rome is the preeminent superpower in the world. Still, he becomes a Roman citizen, possibly, Wikipedia says, named Lucius Mestrius Plutarchus. Uh, He knows what he's talking about. He knows how Greeks and Romans think. Being a Greek by birth and a Roman by citizenry, he knows the Greeks and the Romans because he is a Greek and a Roman. And as such, to read him is to understand better the Greek mind, the Roman mind, the Greek and Roman, Greco-Roman mind. I love the details that he pulls out of these stories. I love the way that he presents those details, not in a dry bullet point format, but in a very vibrant, holistic, integrated way that I think gives us a much clearer idea that these were men. These were men who lived. They had real lives. It's not just what did they do and how does that affect me, which is a very utilitarian way and a very, I think, uh, short-sighted way to look at them. No, no, no. How did they view themselves and one another and how did they view their place in the world? How did they relate to their circumstances and their opportunities and their threats and their conditions and their countrymen and their enemies? How did they do that? Well, in particular... I want to talk with you about a certain Camillus who Plutarch gives us the life of. And in particular, from what one website said are pages 121 to 123, I want to talk about some interactions that Camillus had with a people called the Falerians. Falerii being a city near Rome 
here is the story of Camillus with regards to the Falarians. And I quote, The Falarians, relying on the great strength of their city at all points, made so light of the siege that, with the exception of the defenders of the walls, the rest went up and down the city in their garb of peace. The boys went to school as usual and were brought by their teacher along the walls outside to walk about and get their exercise. For the Falarians, like the Greeks, employed one teacher in common, wishing their boys from the very start to herd with one another and grow up together. This teacher then, wishing to betray Falarii by means of its boys, led them out every day beyond the city walls, at first only a little way, and then brought them back inside when they had taken their exercise. Presently, he led them, little by little, farther and farther out, accustomed them to feel confident that there was no danger at all, and finally pushed in among the Roman outposts with his whole company, handed them over to the enemy, and demanded to be led to Camillus. So led, and in that presence, he said he was a boy's school teacher, but chose rather to win the general's favor than to fulfill the duties of his office, and so had come, bringing to him the city in the persons of its boys. It seemed to Camillus, on hearing him, that the man had done a monstrous deed, and turning to the bystanders, he said, War is indeed a grievous thing, and is waged with much injustice and violence, but even war has certain laws, which good and brave men will respect, and we must not so hotly pursue victory as not to flee the favors of base and impious doers. The great general will wage war relying on his own native valor, not on the baseness of other men. Then he ordered his attendants to tear the man's clothing from him, tie his arms behind his back, and put rods and scourges in the hands of the boys that they might chastise the traitor and drive back into the city. The Falarians had just become aware of the teacher's treachery, and the whole city, as was natural, was filled with lamentation over a calamity so great. Men and women alike rushed distractedly to the walls and gates, when, lo, there came the boys, bringing their teacher back stripped, bound, and maltreated, while they called Camillus their savior, their father, and their god. On this wise, not only the parents of the boys, but the rest of the citizens as well, when they beheld the spectacle, were seized with admiration and longing for the righteousness of Camillus. In haste, they held an assembly and sent envoys to him, entrusting him with their lives and fortunes. These envoys Camillus sent to Rome. Standing in the Senate, they declared that the Romans, by esteeming righteousness above victory, had taught them to love defeat above freedom, not so much because they thought themselves inferior in strength as because they confessed themselves vanquished in virtue. On the Senate's remanding to Camillus the decision and disposition of the matter, he took a sum of money from the Falarians, established friendship with all the Faliscans, and withdrew. And I end quote. <laughs> now, a short write-up bio on Camillus from 
the Encyclopedia Britannica online. Marcus Furius Camillus, that was his full name. He died 365 BCE. He was a Roman soldier and statesman who came to be honored after the sack of Rome by the Gauls in circa 390 as the second founder of the city. Camillus celebrated four triumphs and served five times as dictator of Rome. His greatest victory was as dictator in 396 BC when he conquered the Etruscan city of Veii. He was again appointed dictator in 390 when the Gauls had captured Rome, and he is said to have defeated the invaders. That victory, however, was probably invented to counterbalance Rome's defeat by the Gauls at the Allia River the same year. Thereafter, he fought successfully against the Aquae, Volsci, Etruscans, and Gauls. Although a patrician conscious of his class interest, he introduced pay for the army at the siege of Veii, and realizing the need to make concessions to the plebeians, he accepted the Licinian Sextian reform laws in 367. Although Roman writers may have exaggerated his achievements, Camillus clearly played a dominant role in Rome's recovery in the decades after the Gallic sack of the city. Now, as I often do in moments like this, I want to just say again, I hate it when modern historians do this or when we're told shorthand without being given the reasons why. Why do modern historians think that the achievements of Camillus were inflated? Do you notice it's always an overstatement when it comes to the ancients? We're always being asked to pare down on what we believe they actually accomplished, what great deeds we believe they actually accomplished in their days that we read about in the histories. And yet the men who lived contemporaneously to them, in the absence of mutually exclusive, contradictory uh, accounts from credible sources, you know, shouldn't we trust the people who lived nearer to the events themselves? Shouldn't, shouldn't we? Now, I say that, and I realize for anybody who's a progressive, who's a positivist, who has a very evolutionary mindset, who is uh, uh, you know enslaved by chronological snobbery, as C.S. Lewis would say, for anyone like that, for me to say we actually can learn a lot from previous generations uh, of ancestors and, and people who have lived before in our culture and civilization – for me to say that, that's a very conservative idea. And to that, I would say just so. Yes, it is. And that's part of why I'm a conservative. That's part of how you can be a good conservative is to actually study and pay attention to where do our traditions come from? Where do our norms come from? Where do our values so-called come from? But more to the point, what has been tried and tested and passed the test? in ages past, what is virtue and what is vice and what is good and what is bad and what is wise and what is unwise. And we can see that by how things turned out. The way people in times past engage their circumstances is very important. And if we don't want to learn those lessons, well, then we are foolish. We are being ignorant. That is definitionally ignorant. Now, I'll mention Aside from hating that historians in our day do this so often, they want to revise down all the great deeds and then they want to 
make much of the tiniest little references to something that could be a thread to pull on until the whole sweater unravels. And uh, you can just pick apart great men of days past. Uh, Aside from my soapbox about that, this Camillus character, Marcus Furious Camillus, it says he was a dictator five times, served five times as dictator of Rome, celebrated four triumphs and served five times as dictator of Rome. His dying in 365 BC, a lot of his great notable achievements being in the 390s BC, his being a dictator might land with us a bit different in our day than it did with Romans in the fourth century BC or in the first and second century AD. But since we use the term dictator fairly frequently in the modern era, but may not all know where it came from or that it was not always categorically a negative or stigmatized, I'll just read for you the Britannica, Encyclopedia Britannica, right up that showed up right under, very helpfully, right under the bio for Marcus Furius Camillus. So what is a Roman dictator specifically? It says, in the Roman Republic, a temporary magistrate with extraordinary powers. That's what a Roman dictator was, a temporary magistrate with extraordinary powers nominated by one of two consuls on the recommendation of the Senate and confirmed by the Comitia Curiata, a popular assembly. So here think House of Representatives and Senate. And oh, by the way, us having two branches, uh, you know, a bicameral legislature here in the United States, very much influenced, very much inspired by Rome having this kind of a structure. Also, by the way, in a certain sense, our office of our, our office of president, similar to uh, what's being described here in the Roman Republic, the Roman dictator, our American presidents, in some sense, especially uh, as we have more and more presidents like <laughs> uh, Joe Biden in the past century, fewer and fewer, like Calvin Coolidge, uh, we have more and more presidents who act as dictators. And maybe they're benevolent and maybe they're malevolent. Right now we've got a malevolent one. I think our former was uh, fairly benevolent as far as dictators go. Not that he pleased everyone, obviously. The dictatorship, Britannica continues, was a permanent office among some of the Latin states of Italy, but at Rome, it was resorted to only in times of military and later internal crises. The dictator's term was set at six months, although he customarily laid down his powers as soon as the crisis passed. He had 24 fascists, the equivalent of both consuls, His first act was to appoint as his immediate subordinate a master of the cavalry, Magister Equitum. The consuls and other magistrates continued in office during a dictatorship, but were subject to the dictator's authority. By the 3rd century BC, the limited term of a dictatorship rendered it impracticable in operations outside of Italy. Moreover, by 300 BC, the people had secured the limitation of dictatorial powers by subjecting their use to the right of appeal and to a tribune's veto. Dictators were then named 
for later functions, such as the holding of elections in certain cases. The Carthaginian invasion in the Second Punic War, 218 to 201 BC, spurred a temporary revival of the office, but after 202, no dictators were chosen for any purpose. The dictatorships conferred upon Sulla and Julius Caesar in the last decades of the Republic in the first century BC did not indicate a revival of the former office, but the development of an extra-constitutional office with virtually unlimited powers. Sulla's and Caesar's dictatorships were not for a limited emergency, but rather were meant, quote, to restore the Republic, end quote, a reason mentioned as legitimate in Cicero's De Republica, pages 54 to 52 on the Republic. The term of office was lengthened until Caesar acquired dictatorial powers for 10 years in 46 and for life immediately before his assassination in 44 BCE when the office was abolished. See also tyrant. Now this is to say, by the way, speaking of dictators and American presidents, it is to say I think both Joe Biden and Donald Trump before him have made very similar, very parallel type bids for the executive office to what Roman dictators did. And you can love that, you can hate it, but I think that is what it is. And this you know, move away from limited emergency towards, to quote Britannica, to restore the republic, that is not something that is going to happen in six months. It's not something that arguably is even going to happen in four years. You start talking about saving the republic, restoring the republic. What's another way you could say that in our context, very specifically, make America great again, to restore the republic. is is it It is a very similar mentality. And people who support somebody in a bid for dictatorship to save the republic or to make America great again, probably are going to relate very similarly to one another, whether we're talking about Rome or whether we're talking about the United States of America. That's an observation. Take it for what it's worth. It's not necessarily (laughs) a defense of everything that might be said or done towards the ends of restoring the Republic. But it is interesting. Even going that far, you have to recognize that the claims being made, say, for instance, recently, in that speech in front of Liberty Hall by Joe Biden are not the same between Republicans and Democrats. We have right now a bid by Democrats to try and bar Trump from ever being able to run again. That's why the FBI raided his home and seized a lot of confidential documents, not just government documents, also personal documents, books, gifts, articles of clothing, medical records, tax documents, You have the FBI going on a fishing expedition ever more aggressively because the deep state, the Democrats, the FBI do not want Donald Trump to run for president again because they know he'll win. That's a damning thing that they know he would win if he ran again, especially with how Biden is messing things up. Biden, meanwhile, in that speech that he gave in front of Liberty Hall, not only called MAGA Republicans extremists, but he also talked about his own vision, the vision of the people who put him in power 
for America. And it is not to make America great again. It is not to restore the republic. It is to make America better than ever, which is to say they really think that their vision for our future is fundamentally different in many key respects. However much they might appeal to America's past, their view is fundamentally and deeply transformative, which is to say they want to take the republic in a very, very different direction than what it has been going in over the past two plus uh, centuries, two centuries and counting. So when you come to Trump, on the other hand, you have somebody saying, no, 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 we need to go back in order to go forward. We can't progress unless we restore the republic. The republic is what made America great in the first place. These guys don't have a vision of the republic. They have a vision of a Marxist utopia that every time it's been tried ends in disaster. It ends in disaster. We don't want that. We do want this. And that's where the conflict comes in because the people who think that we can't learn so much from history are not going to read Camillus, uh, The Life of Camillus by Plutarch. They're not going to read Plutarch at all. Uh, And if they do, they're going to be looking for arguments that they can make that they can hijack, essentially. They won't be reading it in context any more than they read the Constitution of the United States in context, any more than they read the Declaration of Independence in context or the Bill of Rights in context. They like historical revisionism. That's exactly why they promote men like Howard Zinn in A People's History of the United States, which is garbage, by the way. It is garbage. Plutarch, by the way, is as good a historian as Howard Zinn is a bad one. So you should read Plutarch. Don't read Howard Zinn. But I note here in this specific story, and this is, I think, why I wanted to talk about the life of Camillus in particular. Notice here, you know, with the city of Falaria, which is, by the way, between 60 and 80 kilometers northwest of Rome. It's still there. The city is still there. It's not very far. And Imagine, if you will, a scenario in which Camillus, as general besieging the city, says, when we take it, we're going to pillage it. In fact, he gets in trouble and self-exiles for a time because he says, we're not going to pillage it. We're not going to loot it. We're going to be very magnanimous with the Falarians. He gets in trouble because there were a lot of soldiers who wanted to pillage the city. He says, no, 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 we're not going to do that. He does accept a little bit of money from the citizens of Falaria. But, I mean, in the long run, you you fast forward a few centuries and things are allowed to develop. His making that decision set a invaluable precedent and it established Rome in virtue locally, regionally, in Italy, in a way that I would say was absolutely essential to Rome later being successful on a larger stage. That isn't to say that Rome continued on being virtuous forever because you have later generations who, just like our generation, have decisions to make about what kind of people we want to be, how do we want to be remembered, how do we want to relate to enemies and rivals and allies and friends and family. But look at this teacher. I want you to key in on this teacher. I am very critical of public education here in the United States of America. If you go read my book, and this is why we homeschool, you'll see a chapter dedicated to how Plato's Republic helped to set some foundation for what later would get picked up on 
by Frederick the Great with the Prussian model of public education, which then was picked up on by progressives here in the U.S. like John Dewey. Now we're here. Now, now we've got what we've got with teachers' unions and Howardson and uh, boys and girls being suicidal because they think the only way to be loved and accepted and amount to anything is to have their uh, you know, distinct sexual organs removed and change the pronouns. But you have here in the story of the life of Camillus a school teacher who is grooming the boys he's teaching for being handed over as hostages to the Roman general Camillus. Notice how this is all set up. This guy's the original groomer. He is taking the boys outside the city for exercise every day with the Romans besieging the city. And notice here too, I mean, every time he's taking the boys outside the city, there's a potential. The Romans are going to see that. And as casual as the Falarians are being, it doesn't sound as though they're watching to see him continue taking these boys closer and closer to the Romans until one day he just has taken these boys all the way to the Roman general and is offering to hand the city over to the Romans in exchange for uh, a reward. And, and all he wants is money. That's all he wants. He's very much like the teachers' unions in our day. All he wants is money. All he wants is political favor. He doesn't give the least little bit of care for what happens to these boys, what happens to the city, what happens to the parents of these boys. In fact, in a very mercenary fashion, as mercenary as somebody could be, as treacherous as somebody could be, he wants to use these boys as hostages to enrich himself, to make himself important. And I love the response. This response from Camillus is very noble and it's very wise and it ends up in a very positive, beneficial conclusion for the Falarians and for these boys and for Rome, actually. He orders this teacher seized, stripped, tied, and then he hands rods and scourges to the boys and says, take him home. Go on home. And, and notice what Camilla says. He says, war is indeed a grievous thing and is waged with much injustice and violence, but even war has certain laws which good and brave men will respect. And we must not so hotly pursue victory as not to flee the favors of base and impious doers. The great general will wage war relying on his own native valor, not on the baseness of other men. That's phenomenal. That is high character. That's integrity. That is virtue, ladies and gentlemen. What the teacher is doing is the opposite. This is vice. This is a morality play. And this is the way that a Greek who becomes a Roman citizen in the first and second century AD thinks. He's thinking in terms of virtue. He's thinking in terms of men who've been successful. He's thinking in terms of the macro and also the very, very personal. This is important to the history of Rome and of the Greeks and of the known world. And Plutarch knows that. His readers know that. We should know that. We should read it and study it accordingly. Also, too, it's very interesting to me that in our day, for a parallel, we have teachers who are making children suicidal by telling them to keep it secret that we're going to change your pronouns. We might even have you start 
hormone therapy or talk with somebody about starting hormone therapy. You know, in the state of Colorado, I was just talking with someone I work with the other day whose son, uh, I think it was he sprained or broke something. And this guy I work with was trying to get the details. And because his son is 13, the state of Colorado has laws saying that his son has to give permission. They, they can't just talk with his father about what's going on medically. And you think to yourself, what in the world are we coming to if a 13-year-old has to give permission to the doctors because this is actually you know, a decision between the doctor and the kid? And that's a slippery slope. And we've got teachers who are making kids suicidal by making them very, very confused about who they are, where they come from, why they're here, where they're going, how to get purpose and belonging in a group, how to have a family. It's a gang initiation that you're going to lop off your reproductive organs and change your pronouns. And for what? Because they want progressive politics to reign supreme because they want the Democrat Party to remake America in its own image because they want selfish uh, gain. And they don't care what happens to these kids. They don't care what happens to the parents of these kids. They think it will go well for them when in actuality, what should probably be done to them is what Camillus ordered done to this teacher. Have them strip naked, uh, tie them, and hand out some rods and scourges to the boys and drive them back to the parents and then see what happens. You know, imagine if in an our day we had school teachers trying to march our kids out to a literal enemy besieging our cities in return for favor. And the general says, no, 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 no. Good men will not stand for this. Even if we're enemies, even if we're besieging your city, there's a line and you crossed it and that's unacceptable. Good men will say, no, absolutely not. And also, I think good men will know what to do with a teacher like that ahead of time. If you've got teachers like that in your school, don't tolerate it. Get your kids out. You've got school administrators or a school board like that in your local school district. Don't tolerate it. Don't waste your child's childhood fighting that. Just get them out and homeschool them. It's as simple as that. Find a good charter school. Find a good private school if you can or homeschool them. But see, that's the compound break. The compound fracture in American society right now is that for me to say that, the Democrats and Biden, beholden to the teachers' unions, will say is extremism. No, it's not extremism. You guys are treacherous. You guys are vile and vicious and immoral and ungodly. I'm not an extremist. You're just a bad person. You're corrupt. You think it's extremism for someone to have virtue because you don't have virtue. You're very mercenary, and the ends justify the means. Any ends can be justified so long as the means you're employing give you the power, which is to say that you promise a great deal, but it's a poison pill. It is going to be fatal. So again, bringing this full circle, what kind of people do we want to be? How do we want to be remembered? And can the life of Camillus be instructive? I dare say it can be, and it should be. And it should be required reading. We should all be picking up a copy, physical print, 
that's fine too if that's how you read. Read a story at a time. Read a life at a time. Well worth your time. Or do what I do and listen through on Audible. Lastly, before we wrap up here, a couple of other items. One, (laughs) let's talk about making moves. So the day before yesterday marked three years since my family and I moved to Greeley, Colorado from Sydney, Montana, where we had lived for seven years. And prior to that, I had lived for 15 years. My wife had grown up for 25 years. And we moved here basically in the middle of renovations on the home we owned in Montana. We rented this house that we're still in, sight unseen. I found it online on Zillow after my little brother and his wife scoped it out for us. They lived just across town in Evans and were the only people we knew in Colorado, but they were able to come over, take a look at it and let us know, hey, is it a good neighborhood? Is it a decent part of town? What can you tell us? They said, yeah, it looks like a nice house. looks like a nice neighborhood. You know, it looks like the part of town that you guys would be you know, very well served to live in. And actually, I looked it up recently because I was just trying to compare and contrast. This is one of the three safest neighborhoods. I think it's number three uh, safest neighborhoods in Greeley, Colorado. There are some sketchy parts of town where I would not, for a much nicer house, live because uh, I just don't get a good feeling. You know, I, I think that there's a lot of neglect. I think there's a lot of uh, boys who don't have fathers around who are running amok and misbehaving. I think there's a lot of uh, men who are not tied down at all by their responsibilities, and the properties demonstrate that. The condition of the streets demonstrate that. Uh, I personally do not want to subject my wife and kids to an environment where you, you've got boys you know, being raised without fathers in the home, fathers in the picture, where there's just a a wild free-for-all. I don't want that for my boys. I don't think that's a good place to have them. But this part of town, very quiet and, uh, you know, very safe comparatively, not without its problems because, you know, people, right? People are people. But the big draw, the big draw in our move to Colorado was not just – you know, oh, we're restless and we can't settle down and we've got to move around all the time. You know, it wasn't that. You know, my contentment would have been to continue on living in eastern Montana and working the job that I was working, uh, you know, but for a couple of factors. One being that there is a bit of an in-group, out-group dynamic in eastern Montana, even though I'm from there originally, I'm a native of Glendive, Montana. If you moved away for 15 years, like I did when I was a kid, came back when I was 25, there are some people who will never forgive you for it. And they will never treat you like you are one of them again, because you left and you came back and you couldn't cut it is what they'll claim. But really what it is, is that uh, they have a very insulated uh, view of the world and they feel threatened. That's really what it is. They've never been anywhere else. They've never done anything else. They've never had to adjust, and they don't want to adjust to you coming in with ideas uh, and, and attitudes that you know might ask questions or might challenge them. They think that whatever they want, they should get, and they're very entitled, even though, yes, it is eastern Montana, and yes, uh, farmers and ranchers sometimes can be very entitled. 
too. It's it's not just soy boys from the big cities. Uh, also, farmers and ranchers sometimes can get uh, on big ego trips and, and act very entitled. But there's also some very, very fine people and some wonderful, beloved family and friends we were very, very sad to leave and would not have left if not for a few draws somewhere else. Uh, my job within Canada at the time, I, I was being told, hey, you're a rock star. You know, I'll make you foreman. I'll offer you more money. I'll offer you more time off. I'll offer you better benefits. Like whatever it is, like unless it's personal and you've got, you know, not professional reasons uh, that are drawing you away, you know, let me know what it is and I'll, I'll make it happen because you're you're a rock star. We want to keep you around. And what it was, was that my wife had had a major, major knee surgery and almost died. I, I almost lost my wife in the summer of 2019 because the doctors and uh, anesthesiologists and surgeons there in Billings, I think uh, either A, didn't know well enough what they were doing or B, it was, uh, I guess some would say our mistake for having scheduled the surgery around the 4th of July or C, a combination of the two, right? A combination of the two was they were distracted by wanting to get over and done with the surgery and get on with their vacation, get out of town, go get to the mountains or go on a trip or whatever. Uh, they were distracted by that, plus also didn't know how to do their job well enough uh, to do it while distracted or to to slow down because they were distracted. And so I almost lost my wife, plus it was four and a half hours one way to get to Billings for the surgery. And as such, we had to have our kids stay with friends uh, three different families, and it was exhausting. And then the recovery was very, very hard. And Colorado, by comparison, has a lot of very competent medical professionals. There's a lot of medical professionals who want to live here. And so if you want access to them for medical care, and my wife was dealing with a lot of just very odd health problems that we weren't getting uh satisfactory answers for. We were just going to the doctor again and again and again and getting incompetence or shrugging or indifference. Uh, you know, it's like, all right, we need to move to a place where we will get something better for you because it's my job to provide for my wife. Secondarily, I've got all these kids who as a father to you know, yes, my wife has responsibilities and she does a fine job homeschooling them. But my my attitude is my job as a father is that the buck stops here with my children. And so if they're getting uh, a good education right now, that's good. But what are they going to do vocationally when they grow up? How are they going to provide for their own families? And if I didn't want them working in ag or oil and gas or for the railroad, or just scraping by, uh, you know, if I was going to encourage them or advise them as they grew up and hit an age of maturity to move out and launch out on their own, uh, Eastern Montana was not the place for us. It was not the place for them. And if I was going to encourage them to launch out, they were going to have to go far afield somewhere else, somewhere far away where we wouldn't be able to support them and encourage them and have their back and counsel them. And Colorado was a big draw for that as well. So 
you know, insofar as my wife has gotten very good medical care here and we've had some wonderful support on the educational initiatives for our kids with MyTech High and now with early college, uh, Colorado early college programs where the oldest two are taking community college classes. We'll see how that goes. We'll see how we feel about it after the first classes are uh, behind us, whether we want to continue, whether it's worth it. <laughs> um, you know, it's been it's been really great. The church we are a part of has been just a, a huge blessing to us, and I think the Lord brought us here to be a blessing to it. And there's no question three years later that the Lord's purpose was for us to move here when we did. And we're thankful for the way he's provided for us in bringing us here. Now, that doesn't mean life has been easy without struggle, without trial, without heartbreak or pain. But it does mean that the Lord has blessed us here and we are sure his purposes are good, even in the midst of challenges. An ectopic pregnancy that my wife could have died from shortly after we moved here. If that had happened in Sydney, Montana, they would have careflighted her to Bismarck, North Dakota or Billings, Montana, and she might not have made it. It's just that's the long and short of it. She might not have made it, and I would not have trusted the medical professionals in Sydney, Montana, to take care of it. I just flat wouldn't have. So that alone, to my mind, made it worth it that we moved here. But then COVID, the lockdowns, the craziness with regards to uh, work cutting hours, being scaled back, shenanigans with other people being stressed out about masks and vaccines and being very uh, unpleasant. All of it was a challenge and a trial and a struggle. But the Lord has blessed us even in the midst of it. We trust that his purposes are to bring to a good end all things for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. We believe we're called according to his purpose. And so we're expectant even when we struggle, even when we're challenged. And these are challenging times. And we're headed right now into what some experts are warning will be a deep and prolonged recession, which they only begrudgingly admitted once we were in a recession at all. And even once we were in the recession, they're just like, oh, well, is it really a recession? It's a very strange one. It's like, well, maybe for you, <laughs> maybe for you, it's a strange recession because your politics are such that your stuff is able to get printed and published and you know, you're rewarded handsomely for it. But if we're now hearing experts saying we might be headed into a deep and prolonged recession, I personally think that could turn into a depression. And I'm seeing some headlines to that effect as well. This could turn into uh, another depression like happened about a century ago. And for the same reasons, due to excessive government intervention, Calvin Coolidge would not have taken us into a depression. It was a recession. Recessions happen, but the Great Depression was due to excessive government intervention by a Republican and a Democrat. Both. They could not stop tinkering and tweaking and finagling, and they made things worse. And so also here. The excessive government intervention is killing us. And especially the irresponsible, immoral I would say even immoral printing of money that has devalued our currency even as wages remain flat is 
going to create a lot of pain. And it already has. Everything is getting more expensive except for the value of yours and my labor. But I recently had contact from recruiters for a major semiconductor factory uh, company, manufacturing company, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, TSMC. They make microchips for Apple, for NVIDIA, for a lot of a lot of the big companies that have uh, familiar brands and applications in the modern era. They're building a major 12 billion with a B dollar semiconductor factory in Phoenix, Arizona. And they want to talk with me about coming to work for them. And it would mean a major disruption. And if I'm honest with you, uh, you know, I, I would say I hope they don't call me back, but they've called me back. Uh, actually, I was planning on talking about this on the podcast, and then an email came through. And I was going to say, I hope they don't call me back. And then an email comes through saying, okay, the hiring manager would like to interview you. So it's recruiters first, and then they wanted me to send me their uh, questionnaire filled out and a copy of my updated resume. And I thought, after talking about it with Lauren and the kids, and I really hope they just don't. I, I hope they don't, right? Because problem solved. But I'll be honest with you. I do not want to move. After thinking about it, it's exciting to think of moving to the Sonoran Desert. That's a very exciting idea. Phoenix, Arizona. I've never lived there. I hear it's hot, but people live there. It's the 10th largest metropolitan area in the US. So there's a lot of people that live there. Uh, There would be challenges and exciting aspects, but I don't want to move. We do want our circumstances to improve, but we'd like to improve them here, not there, uh, if we're honest. And yet, on the other hand, I come from an extended family, a large extended family, where opportunities and challenges have for generations inspired moves here and there. And my ancestors on the mullet side have been here in America for a few hundred years now. They came over from Switzerland and settled in Pennsylvania and then gradually moved west until the branch of mullets that I come from moved to eastern Montana. And then from there, my grandfather moved my dad and his eight siblings all over the U.S. a couple of times, moved down to Heston, Kansas and bought XL Industries with his brother, moved down to Florida and started a logging company. They had never done any logging at all. And if you have seen Eastern Montana, you know, there's not a lot to log really. (laughs) But he moved the family around a couple of times. My aunts and uncles, most all of them have moved around the country several times. And that's because they go where the opportunity is. There's a little bit of a nomadic quality to it. If they can go over here and get into this industry and start a company and then build it up and be successful and then sell it and then go over there and take the seed money and start another company, well, then that's what they do. Uh, That's what we do in some sense. And so I look at that and I think, well, okay, I can't forget (laughs) uh, where I come from and uh, what we've known to be successful just because we want to be somewhere. And uh, and just, you know, to be very clear too, 
I don't say any of this to brag that we move when there's a lot of people who seem paralyzed with fear at the idea of moving to new areas. You know, the uprooting and starting over business, it's very, very scary to a lot of people. And I'm not bragging that it's not so scary to me. It's exciting to me because we've done it. Uh, We've done cross-country moves a few times. I'm not bragging that I have opportunities that come up, like the one that brought us to Montana in 2012 or brought us to Colorado in 2019, or you know, opportunities that come up like this one, potentially in Phoenix. But I'm fixed on this. This is the whole reason I'm telling you. I'm convinced, I'm convinced, I'm fully persuaded that we should be content to stay when the Lord's purpose is for us to stay, and no less, we should be content to go when the Lord's purpose is for us to go. And God has always, by turn, purposed for his people to do both. We read that in the scriptures. I know that from my family history. Sometimes the one, sometimes the other. Sometimes the Lord's purpose is to go when he says go. Sometimes the Lord's purpose is to stay when he says stay. And I believe, having seen both sides and having it as my goal to be content, to be content in all circumstances, we will never fully and truly enjoy or benefit from God's purposes one way or the other if we are more influenced by our fear of the unknown than comforted by the goodness and assurance of his promise and his purpose in Christ. I think remembering that is the most profitable thing, come what may. Whether we're about to go into a recession that is deep and dark and who knows how long it'll last, whether we're about to go into another Great Depression, whether we're about to have World War III kickoff, whether we're about to have Civil War 2.0, come what may, what the Lord purposes will succeed and what he is against will fail, period. And we can rest in that. We can rest in that. Lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. But That's also all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. Stay tuned, by the way, for, and I don't know how I'll do it. I'm open to suggestions, but I have a request for a uh, special episode. (laughs) The book of Ezekiel, I'll give you a little teaser. The book of Ezekiel, I just recently found out, has traditionally not been, uh, you know, permitted reading for women by rabbis. Uh, rabbis have a tradition, or so I read in N.T. Wright's biography of the Apostle Paul, uh, that women should not read the book of Ezekiel in the Old Testament. Also, that men under, you know, he said 40, I read 30 somewhere else, but 30 or 40, men under 30 or 40 years old should not read Ezekiel. And I have a request from a listener to do a podcast episode about why. And so I need to take some time and plan that out, make sure I've got my ducks in a row. But stay tuned for that. That will be interesting, I think. Also, too, I was sent a link by my wife this week about Doug Wilson and a timeline presented by some people who don't like him very much 
a timeline of scandals and controversies related to Doug Wilson. And I'll be honest with you, I like Doug Wilson, and I like Canon Plus, and I like Canon Press and what they put out, and I like Blog and Mayblog, and I like what I see from a distance. And yet, you will know if you've listened to anything I've put out on Jordan Hall, uh, things sometimes don't uh, all work out on the ground up close like they appear maybe from a distance. And so I think it's good to grapple with some of the controversy surrounding Doug Wilson, what to make of it, what's driving it, uh, what is it for one, but what do we make of it? And uh, no less because I like him. I, and I do. I genuinely appreciate what I see Doug Wilson putting out from what I have seen of what he's putting out, hearing what he has to say. I don't agree with all of it, but all the more rather than less because I like him and I have positively referenced his work, his material. Do I want to dig in and uh, let's talk about it, shall we? But stay tuned. I think those will be two separate episodes. I don't think <laughs> I want to try and combine both of them in one. The Ezekiel <coughs> controversy and the uh, Doug Wilson controversy. But I think they'll they'll pair nicely anyways, even if they're two separate episodes. We'll put them back to back probably. But in any event, hit the subscribe button wherever you listen to podcasts. If you haven't yet, sign up for email alerts at thegear-mulletshow.com. Let me know if you want a sticker, but I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time. God bless. listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.